Game Changer, Episode 10, The Game of Knowledge, with Stephen Kaukinen and Thomas Sue of Accenture. Welcome to Game Changer, a series on using gamification to engage employees. Join us as industry experts discuss one of the hottest trends in business today. Using game thinking to engage employees in work, wellness, recruiting, and more. This is a special podcast series by the producers of the top-rated podcast, The Engaging Leader. And now, with nearly 20 years of experience helping engage hundreds of thousands of employees at Fortune 500 companies and other organizations, here's your host, Jesse Leahy. Welcome to the show, Game Changers. This is the show for CEOs, HR executives, and other business leaders to learn about internal gamification. Over the course of this series, you'll hear examples and pitfalls, discover how to assess when it's an appropriate strategy, and learn to evaluate gamification partners and game design ideas. I am Jesse Leahy, and our guests today are Stephen Kaukinen and Thomas Sue of Accenture. The management and tech consulting firm with over 260,000 people serving clients in more than 120 countries. Thomas is a social collaboration and knowledge management expert, as well as the certified gamification expert leading Accenture's gamification community of practice. Steve is the culture change lead for Accenture's social learning team. They'll help us unpack the intrinsic and extrinsic motivations specific to enterprise social collaboration and share lessons learned and results from Accenture's journey to gamify their own social collaboration capabilities. Stephen and Thomas, welcome to Game Changer. Thanks for having us here, Jesse. Great to be here. Yes, thank you, Jesse. Can you guys share with us your personal history about how you came to be involved in gamification? Yeah, I'll start. Uh, This is Steve uh, Kaukinen. I think it goes back a number of years. Uh, Thomas and I sit on a team within Accenture focused on social collaboration, about how people are able to connect to other people and the information they need to do their jobs. And as such, uh, we sit within an area that helps drive the culture uh, within this collaboration space. So for a while, I've, I've been taking a look at, you know, how do I engage people? How do I get them to come out here and collab- collaborate and share? So just over six years ago, we started, we did a study, got involved in the space about how to motivate people, how to get them to adopt these tools and capabilities. And uh, so I, I, it started back then. You know, more recently now, as gamification has become more of a, a more mainstream term, um, you know, we continue to deepen our skills in the space. And so just from having some firsthand experience of what we do here at Accenture, as well as continuing to engage and understand what's going on externally and figuring out how it all applies, uh, I think it's really been driving my, my, my interest and my, uh, my time in this space. Thomas? Yeah, for me, it started with a video by Gabe Zuckerman on YouTube. It was a Google talk he gave. And I watched that. It was about an hour long, and I was hooked. I just found the topic really fascinating. And from that point on, I basically tried to become as smart as I possibly could about the topic and really immerse myself. So, you know, I read a lot of books about it. I took the online class taught by the Wharton School of Business on Gamification. I attended G Summit. And just really got involved. Actually, this past April, I actually spoke at G-Summit and have been involved with Steve in creating a community of practice within Accenture on gamification and leading that community of practice and helping facilitate and run that. 
And so we have calls within Accenture to talk about different gamification topics, to talk about examples both internal and with our clients. So I, that's kind of the history of where, where I came from. But I really just found the topic to be very interesting and engaging. And, and so that's how I fell into it. Just out of curiosity, how long ago was that that it hit your radar screen? Well, I think from a conceptual perspective, it's been out there for quite some time. You know, the the whole idea behind you know driving a program to engage people to help them understand how well they're doing within the collaboration knowledge sharing space, how how to motivate them. You know, but from a the term gamification, it's only been with, within the last year and a half or two that that's come more to light. And I, I think using that term in and of itself is is a bit newer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think Steve's been doing it since two thousand eight. That's when he started up our recognition program, which has a lot of concepts similar to gamification. It has a lot of the same roots and is using a lot of the same techniques. Uh, For me personally, it was around 2010 when I started to get really uh, into this topic. Yeah, and really, it's not been very long that it's been even in the public consciousness at all. But one of the topics that is part of gamification that's used a lot and it goes along with recognition, as you just mentioned, Thomas, is behavioral economics. Um, can you talk about what that is and what's the difference and overlap between that and gamification? I think of gamification, I mean, there's a couple of good definitions of gamification, but it's really learning about learning from games to solve problems. It's taking the essence of what made games so compelling and interesting and applying those in non-game contexts to engage people and solve problems. And part of why it works is because of the science behind gamification. There's actually quite a bit of science and research behind it. You know, you talk about psych- psychology with some of the early work around behaviorism uh, that's quite quite old, and more recently around self-determination theory. And that drives a lot of the motivation science behind gamification. There's a lot of neuroscience behind it. So we're learning new things about the brain all the time and we're understanding how better how the brain works and some of the chemicals involved in terms of dopamine or epinephrine and how those play into pleasure and motivation and the reward system in your brain. There's been research around habit formation. Charles Duhigg wrote a book about that that looked at how neuroscience and the brain functions as it, as it develops and starts to engage in habits. Um, and then behavioral economics as well in terms of how people make choices, uh, looking at reward schedules and how that interacts, how, how people's brains interact with that and how they diff- make different choices. Um, there's choice architectures, how you design choices to get a more desired outcome. So I think there's actually a lot of science, a lot of rich science behind gamification. And I think the interesting, the exciting thing is that the book is, the book on human behavior is still being written. Right? We mm-hmm. live in a golden age of behavioral research, behavioral science, um, and now we've got analytics that help us to analyze and decipher behavioral patterns, and we're you know, better at placing electrodes in people's brains and you know, recording wavelengths and all those things, um, I think is really exciting because this area is still evolving. We're still learning. We're still experimenting in this space. So I think there's a pretty exciting future for gamification. Um, people, a lot of people say it's a fad, but every time they say that, I say, well, I don't think it's a fad because there's real science behind it, and that science is continuing to evolve. Yeah, that's interesting. Now, some of the science is finding some 
potential downsides or pitfalls in gamification. Can you tell us about those? Yeah, so from a downside or pitfall gamification perspective, you know, there's a couple of things uh, in the space. One is really around, you know, first of all, the fact that, that you know, gamification in and of itself is not easy. Um, you know, just to go out there and uh, and I think a lot of times people put this up in a very simplistic uh, perspective, and they throw something out there and hope it sticks. You know, they they throw together some points, badges, and leaderboards, uh, which sometimes when you do that, and it's only about points, badges, and leaderboards, it's about pointsification. It's not really truly looking at the design elements of gamification to see how it can work in there. So I think it can most certainly be seen in many instances as a flash in the pan, and very quickly people can become bored with it. You know, I've earned the badge. I need there to earn. I got enough points. I'm good to go. I'm on to the next thing. So I think you know one of the downsides is just from the design element of it. Uh, another perspective is really around you know being focused on activities. Uh, so as people look to gamify a, a, a program or a, a space within their organization, um, they look at how they can track that. A lot of times when you look at the activities that they track, they get so focused in on the activities that they forget about the behaviors that they're trying to drive. So within Accenture, uh, within the social collaboration, social learning space, we talk about three different behaviors that we focus on. One is around connect, so around how people connect to people and to content. One around contributing, so how are they contributing uh, their knowledge to Accenture and cultivating? How do they, perhaps they aren't the originator of the, of the thought or the idea, but how can they interact with and grow ideas of others? So it's around connect, contribute, and cultivate. So that the focus is around the behaviors, not just around the activities. So if you are focused on activities, the downside is that people get busy doing activities, and at the end of the, end of the day, they're not really driving that behavior, don't have the right um, attributes to be able to be a strong social collaborator. And the other downfall too within gamification is around you know people who try to game the system. You know, the, the, ironically enough, the, the the term gamification has the term game in it, and people like to try to game <laughs> something for their own personal good. And so you have to be very careful in the design of your overall program to make sure that you're able to address that type of people who want to go out there and, and game the system. Because if you, if you kind of reveal your cards to them, let, let them know, these are the behaviors that we want to, to encourage. And oh, by the way, here's how we're going to track that through these types of activities. Many people will try to go to figure out, okay, how can I quickly get the most points by doing the least amount of work? And that's something that we try to prevent. Yeah, I would also say the design aspect is really important. A lot of the critiques of gamification, a lot of the critics out there, they're not really saying that gamification doesn't work. They're saying that poorly designed gamification doesn't work. And that's what you mm -hmm. see a lot out there. And you hear that you hear that statistic all the time that Gartner says 80% of gamified applications will fail. And they say it's because of poor design. It's because designing gamification is not easy. You really have to understand motivations what motivates your audience? How do you create rewards that are actually meaningful within the context of what you're trying to do? So I think really the, the primary pitfall for me is around designing it well and putting in the time and effort to design it well and to think of it as more of a long-term commitment, right? You launch gamification, you'll have to, you have to feed it. You have to cultivate that. You can't just launch something once and expect it to last forever. You've got to keep thinking of new ways to engage the user to keep them engaged over time for, for more long-term engagement. So I think that's one of the primary pitfalls. Ironically enough, one of the big critics, Ian Bogost, created a game called Cow Clicker. And he created the game to specifically demonstrate what bad gamification looks like and how it doesn't work. And the funny thing is, ironically, the game actually went viral. So <laughs> even though he's trying to prove that gamification, that points of vacation is bad, you know, some of it does work because of the way our brains are wired. 
But I think as we go along, that novelty is going to wear off. People will start to see through that. And that's when the good designs will really stand the test of time and will separate themselves from all the folks who are doing basically bad or poorly designed gamification. At Accenture, you have implemented different examples of gamification that I think can probably highlight some of the learnings that show how you would mitigate some of the, the risks of these unintended consequences or, or pitfalls. Can you, can you share an example or two with us? Sure. I think it's helpful to think of gamification as a spectrum, right? It can be very subtle uh, and some, something that people don't always notice. So for example, on our portal or intranet, We've got this little global travel widget that tells you, for example, how many flights you've booked, but also how far in advance did you book them? Are there any missed savings in terms of not booking the cheapest flight, right, to help try and drive people's behaviors around uh, exhibiting the right, the proper travel behaviors so mm-hmm. that we can reduce costs for extension for our clients? That's kind of on one end of the spectrum. You've got another example is our A3 program for social collaboration, which is all about how you motivate people to collaborate socially. And it uses the mechanics around points and badges and those typical type, types of mechanics, as well as thinking about what motivates people to collaborate. Further up the spectrum, you've got things that get into more actual games. So we've created games for our clients and also internally that help people learn, for example, a new business strategy, or that can help track people's attitudes and behaviors as they go through a system implementation. So we created a game for a large global bank that did this, and internally, we created a game that people played to get them engaged in one of our business strategies. And we've also been doing things like virtual simulations and uh, virtual reality for our clients for a number of years. So I think it's important to think of it in terms of a whole spectrum of examples or a whole spectrum of what gamification can look like. It doesn't always look the same. And kind of to build a little more deeper example there that Thomas was pointing out uh, with our A3 program, uh, A3 stands for Addo Ignatio Award, which loosely translated in Latin means to give knowledge. Again, Accenture is a knowledge organization. You know, we don't have a product beyond our people and their knowledge. So how we take that knowledge and make it reusable and be able to deliver those solutions to our clients because of our people's knowledge is critical to our, you know, to our survival and, and to our ability to, um, to, to function in the marketplace. And so I think from the, for the A3 program, again, it was all focused around this collaboration sharing element of how do we allow people to understand how effective they are and the impact that they're having when it comes to collaborating and sharing. So we, ex- we created this score based upon about 30 different data points, uh, again, focused around the three Cs that I talked about before, connect, contribute, and cultivate. So as they do activities such as uh, post a blog or as other people are viewing their blog or or interacting with their blog or if someone uploads a document to our knowledge exchange or engages through through a community of practice, they join a community of practice or they post a simple microblog post. Uh, We we track these activities to tie them back to these these three behaviors of connect, contribute, and cultivate and generate the score. The score is currently a quarterly score and at the end of each quarter, uh, we we tally up the scores for everybody and we, we do some recognitions for the top people. So the top 25 people are recognized with uh, some what are called celebrating performance points. A similar one point would, would be equal to like one US dollar. 
They're also receiving a recognition from leadership with e-cards and recognition being called out uh, through postcards and newsletters within the organization. Um, then we also have an honorable mention award. So the top 25 is, is rather exclusive club when you're an organization of a quarter million people. So we also recognize an additional about 1,000 people per quarter who we, we refer to as the honorable mention award. So they get very similar, a lot of the similar types of recognition. About the only thing that, that they do not get is the 100 celebrating performance points. So again, we use this program overall. There's many different elements to it that we can talk about later on as well as we give these examples to really drive that engagement around collaboration and knowledge sharing to help them understand the value that they can get from it to help build their skills, help grow their knowledge, and help you be able to deliver solutions to our clients at the end of the day. Because again, that's why we're here. Again, we're here for our clients. And the more efficiently we're able to do that, it not only makes our, our employees more engaged, it also helps drive better solutions for our, our clients. What can you tell us about the intrinsic and extrinsic motivations specific to enterprise social collaboration? Yeah, I can start that off, and Tom's can interject as, as I go along here. So from an extrinsic perspective, you know, I think this is a way that to get people connected initially. There are different ways that we, from an from a A3 program, use the extrinsic motivation to drive adoption, to drive these behaviors. So first of all, I think it is around understanding and articulating that impact through social collaboration. So we have a program here through the A3 program that allows people to see the impact that they're having. So we actually give them some data points to say, hey, listen, as you're posting a blog out there or as you're uploading a document or as you're posting a microblog post, here's how much other people are, are interacting with that. And what that does is it actually creates this extrinsic motivation for them to say, hey, listen, I wrote that blog you know, last month and now I've seen you know, 500 people have viewed, it, viewed that blog. That helps motivate me in, uh, extrinsically to say, hey, listen, this is a, a pretty cool thing. Um, also being recognized and rewarded for it. Again, through our A3 program, we send out e-cards, uh, celebrating performance points, uh, notes from leadership, leadership recognition. Again, these are other extrinsic motivating factors that can help drive that adoption, help drive those behaviors, and even tying it back into performance management. Uh, so at the end of the year, as we're all evaluated and you know, as factors into you know, being promoted, uh, factors into pay raises and so forth, being able to tie this back in, again, that's another extrinsic motivating factor. But at the same time, you know, that gets us up so far up, up that curve, you know, up that adoption curve. But if you're, if you're not careful, that extrinsic motivation can eventually tail off or, or flatline or, or become very, you know, even slightly downward trend. So how do you build that long-term engagement? And that's where I think the intrinsic motivation comes into play. So when we talk about intrinsic motivation, it's around mastery autonomy and purpose. So at the end of the day, mm -hmm. we're really trying to help people do their job more effectively. So from a mastery perspective, being able to, to, to master a skill set, um, from autonomy, being able to make choices about what path you want to take, or the purpose of the greater good. So again, I'm here doing my job, but when I'm able to see a broader impact that I'm having, or how Accenture is influencing the world, again, that gives me a greater sense of purpose. It's interesting because from an extrinsic perspective, we thought Accenture being a very type A competitive culture that everyone would list competition and, and status as being the primary motivator. But it, it was actually more about, as Steve mentioned, understanding and articulating the impact they're having through social collaboration so that they could be recognized and rewarded for it. I also like to, I, I think it'd be helpful to talk about an example when we talk about extrinsic and intrinsic. We've got this person in our company, her name is Claire, and she's a blogger and she's got a huge following on her blog. Um, in, in one activity she ran through her blog, she was able to positively impact about a quarter of the company just because mm. of the wide readership she had and you know the activities that those folks were doing as a result of her blog were impacting others in a positive manner. 
And you look at Claire, and she's actually motivated by both sides of the coin. So from an extrinsic perspective, for her actually, in particular, competition is something that motivates her. So she sees this other guy, Bob, on her team on, in Accenture, who's also a blogger, and she's her competitive nature makes her want to beat him in terms of the number of blog <laughs> views and how many people she's impacting. But on the other hand, because the blog has become so important to her and and how she does her job, if we completely took away the A3 program, we didn't give her any points, there's no recognition, there's no leaderboard that said where she was in relation to Bob, she would still blog because of the impact and, and the influence she's gained through blogging and just the, the intrinsic rewards and that she got from, from doing this. So I think it's important to look at both. Again, a lot of the uh, poorly designed gamification initiatives or projects, they only look at the extrinsic motivation. And again, that's, as Steve mentioned, that's great for the sort of short-term rapid adoption. But if you don't quickly get people to a level of mastery where they can start to become really good at collaboration and therefore start to realize the intrinsic benefits of it, it's going to tail off. But if you can do that, if you can get them to that intrinsic motivation place, that's where you get the sustained engagement. Now you have the, the A3 example is really in the field of knowledge management and collaboration. So that has obviously proved to be a good area, at least at Accenture, for gamification. What are some signs that a certain area is not a good candidate for gamification? Well, I think there's a couple ways to think about it. And part of it is a bit introspective, right? I think you shouldn't be using gamification if you you don't have a solid understanding of what motivates people. If you're not thinking about what motivates people, you're doing it wrong. If you're thinking about gamification as just a technology that you have to implement, you're gonna it's, it's going to fail. If you're thinking of gamification as sort of a short-term commitment, you're not thinking about what's going to happen in the long-term, about how you sustain long-term engagement, about how you keep people engaged, you shouldn't be doing gamification. If you're working in an area where the underlying product doesn't offer value, right? So if you are creating a knowledge management system and you're still sort of in the foundational stages, you're not really mature yet, the tools aren't that great yet, or they're not that easy to use, you know, you want to put off gamification. You, you want to get your core product in a good state before you apply gamification. So part of it is really just looking at yourself, your specific project, your initiative, and saying, you know, am I ready for this? Because it's not an easy thing. It's not something to be taken lightly. Uh, in terms of sort of the, the subject area, um, I think that's a bit more object subjective. But what you need to be careful of is if you've got a certain behavior or activity where the existing motivation is already there and it's more than enough to get people to do something, um, especially if it's interesting motivation, you want to think twice about using gamification. Um, there's been plenty of studies that say if someone is intrinsically motivated already, uh, for example, you've got a kid, the common example is a kid who likes to play the piano. He just loves to do it because it's fun for him and he gets enjoyment out of it. And then you start to add all these extrinsic motivators. You start giving him ribbons for winning awards and you start you know, adding all this other stuff to it. It can crowd out the intrinsic motivation. And then you take away those points or those ribbons and the kid no longer wants to play the piano anymore. Mm -hmm. You've almost removed that motivation for him. So that's the other thing to think about is you know, how much are people going to want to do this on their own? Um, and then you have to be very careful about not replacing that intrinsic motivation. 
Now, do you take a program like at Accenture with value pursuit? How did you decide whether or not that was a good area to gamify? That, so that was something where we had a, a business, an execution strategy that leadership had decided was going to help us to grow. And they wanted to drive that down into the ranks, right? We, they wanted people to understand the strategy and to execute on that strategy. And I think it's something that is kind of similar to social collaboration. If you were to ask someone, you know, is this a good thing to do? They would probably say, yes, yes, I should be collaborating. Yes, I should be executing on this business strategy. It's a good strategy. Is there value in doing it? Yes. Do you want to do it? Yes. But getting people over that hump to actually start doing it is very difficult. And another example to compare to is exercise, right? People Mm -hmm. know they should exercise. They want to exercise, but they find it hard to kind of get it, get going and to, to motivate themselves. So in those cases, I think gamification can be very good at changing those behaviors, providing some of the extra motivation, helping people form the right habits and behaviors. And so that's where that's kind of the angle we took with the value pursuit game. And we use that game to both, again, help people to learn the content, but also to demonstrate specific behaviors that they were then rewarded for. And how did that game work? What did that feel like as a participant? That was further up the spectrum. So it wasn't your typical you know, points and badges. I mean, there was there were point mechanics in there, mm-hmm. but it was an actual game. It was a ser- basically what's called a serious game, where it's a game that they play to learn to demonstrate certain behaviors. And so it was a game that Accenture, actually, we cooperated with Stanford University to build it. And Steve and I both tried it out, and it was actually really fun. I mean, it was very well designed. They had these different mechanics, like, you know, filling out a crossword puzzle or, or fill in the blank and they had different quiz elements, and you had a way to unlock certain rewards. I couldn't put my finger on it, but it was really just a well-designed, well-thought-out game. Looking at it was robust. It was yeah. very well. Yeah. It was, so as Thomas was saying, it's just not this very basic thing. You earn a few points, and then you go home. Mm-hmm. It was very engaging, very robust. And again, and that gets back to our whole design element from before, is when it's designed well, that's going to engage your employees. So that type of more immersive game is probably more expensive to create and it's highly custom customized but if it's has the right for the right business problem it's probably well worth all that time and effort i think so and i think the vendors are there's more vendors in the space in the enterprise space that are doing more the virtual reality and immersive games so it's becoming more accessible for companies to apply this in the enterprise i think the challenge in that space is that if you if a vendor is creating this immersive reality environment and it's really good, typically they can make more money selling it as a game <laughs> as opposed <laughs> to selling it to enterprises. But there are a number of, of emerging vendors who are doing this stuff. And then, of course, there's also the vendors who are more on the pure gamification side, like a Bunchball or a Bazville. And again, in that case, the technology is coming along so that it's easier, right? It's being industrialized. It's being offered as a cloud service. Uh, or or as a cloud product. So I think in both ends of the spectrum, clients and companies are able to do this more easily, more cost-effectively. The simulation side, the virtual gaming side, has been around longer. uh, But I think in both sides, it's starting to become easier for people to take advantage of this. But even the gamification side of things, where it's, it's more streamlined than the serious games or the more immersive games, there's still going to be a cost to that. So when you look at making a business case 
beyond the anecdotal evidence, do you have data that you can share with us to support whether gamification is making a meaningful difference? Yeah, this this is a tough space to be in when it comes to metrics and tracking ROI and so forth and the value that it drives. Um, you know, we've been tracking this activity or these scores for over over the past you know five and a half six years, and you know we've definitely seen an uptick in the overall adoption and the behaviors that we want people to have. Now the question that becomes is how much of that is attributed to gamification versus how much of it is attributed to other things. The technology's gotten better, or we did a communication campaign around this, or you know there are other touch points within the employee lifecycle process where we, we bring people up to speed on this through, through enablement. So it, it's, it, it's a tough call to say, directly attributed to gamification, here's the impact that we've had. But as we look over the course of time, we see a constant upward trend of these behaviors, this up, upward trend of these activities to say, hey, yeah, you know, how people are engaging and collaborating continues to increase here at Accenture. So that is a tough call to say how much of this, you know, besides anecdotal evidence from the, the feedback that we get, you know, which I think is terrific. We have some really great quotes when we talk about direct uh, correlation between what we've done within our program around A3 versus the data that you have that supports the longer, the, the broader spectrum say, okay, what, what impact are you having here uh, within Accenture? But we do see an upward trend. Again, just even taking a look at average scores, um, average activities, um, those have trended up over since you know, 2008, 2009. And for us as Accenture, we really think of gamification as part of a larger behavior-shaping framework. So we don't think of gamification in a silo, but we think of it as one tool in a tool set and we combine it with, for example, proven change management techniques. So, of course, we pay a lot of attention to sponsorship, enablement, communications. We also look at what research tells us about social influence and how social dynamics can shape behaviors. And we pull that all together into a whole. So we think of gamification as part of something bigger. We do it in lockstep with our communications campaign. So for us, you know, it's more about tying the ROI of our overall behavior shaping and cultural change approach. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. There are many vendors in this space offering various technologies for gamification. But besides looking at those, should an organization consider designing their own programs? This is a very good question. I guess now after doing this for about six years and we're still doing this in-house, I would, I would quickly default to say no. <laughs> look, at, look at external vendors because they are specializing in, in the space now. I think initially, I, I think uh, an organization can take a look at more of a simplified approach and can do that in-house just to kind of see the impact that they might have here before perhaps going out and spending money on an external vendor. But I think pretty quickly, you know, I wanted to, as you know, four or five years ago, wanted to, you know, go down the path of, of automating this process that we have. And we, t- we took a couple of false starts trying to, to, to develop it internally. And now we're to a point now where we're looking to, you know, work with an external vendor and driving our overall gamification program, partly because it, it's matured a bit more. But at the same time, you know, if you have the money, you know, I wouldn't hesitate to engage a vendor uh, within the space. Because again, I think if you don't have expertise in this area, and if you try to just throw out elements of gamification at a, at a business problem, you could be one of those 80% of gamification initiatives that fail just because it's poorly designed. I think a vendor can most certainly come in and help you with the design element, help you with execution of the overall process to make it much more easier and much more impactful for your employees. I would now, after six years of running this program, even though I think we have great knowledge in this space, just even the technology that can support it that's readily available through a vendor um, can, is very strong. And uh, to, for us to try to develop that to that level now internally, even though we as Accenture develop systems for our, our own clients, I would say, you know, B2B 
be careful as to designing it on your own. If you do, perhaps some baby steps in that space. But once you look, really look to, to evolve it much more broadly, engage a, an external vendor, I, th- I think yeah, it, will, it, will, it will be money well worth, worth the spending. You know, I would echo that. There are a lot of simple things you can do with gamification that don't require technology, that are pretty motivating. I heard of one company where within their sales workforce, the manager or the leader would just send out an email with sort of a manual leaderboard on it. Um, And it actually turned out to be very motivating for that particular context. But again, as Steve mentioned, as you want to get more sophisticated, as you want to get into real-time feedback and you build you know, onboarding missions and progression to mastery and uh, dynamic leaderboards that are contextual to you. That's certainly where you want to start looking at technology. We were, our our CIO, when we were talking with them, initially was thinking that, you know, the more sophisticated gamification technology was something that we might be able to do. But when we started to look at some of the technical demonstrations and overviews of some of the products out there, we quickly realized that this is not something we want to get into the business of building, <laughs> right? There's some really sophisticated technology out there, you know, administration consoles that let you define new rules and badges and missions and challenges on the fly that have built-in analytics. There's just a lot of investment that's gone into these products. So I think when you get more sophisticated, you want to go with some of these pure play vendors where, you know, that's all they do. And they, they built some pretty good products out there. I think by looking at the size of your organization as well and how much activity that you're trying to track. Again, some of the stuff can be almost, you know, we, we started in, you know, started out with a basic Excel spreadsheet tracking. You know, we ran some reports and, and track it that way. So I think when you have a smaller population, I think you might be able to do something within your own organization. But once you scale that up and once you try to evolve it and, and expand it, and again, we often, when, when we talk to this, we talk about starting small and scaling up. But once you start to do that scaling up, you quickly realize that it can be very much become a headache when you try to design and develop and, and administer it uh, with, within your organization. Stephen Thomas, where can people find out more about you and your work and also potentially get to know who some of these solution providers that are available are? We've actually done a number of talks and presentations. We presented at G-Summit in April. Uh, We also talked about this at the APQC CAM conference in Houston. And that was actually this this past month. or or May, yep, yep. First part of May. (laughs) A couple of weeks ago. We published an article on CAM World. And on Accenture.com, there's a couple of points of view on gamification that different parts of our organization, such as our tech labs and our Accenture Interactive Practice, have put out. So there's a number of things you can find online. I think APQC also published a research pack on gamification for CAM that we were quoted in. So there's a a couple of things out there. In terms of looking at buying gamification technology and where do you start there, there's one site, you know, gamification.co, the site that Gabe Zuckerman runs, they've got a what's called a G-Base, which has a listing of a lot of the vendors in this space. Mario Herger, who is a uh, enterprise gamification SME, he's pretty visible in the space. He's got a website, enterprise-gamification.com, I believe. And he's got um, sort of a vendor matrix as well on his site. So I think there's some resources out there that you can use if you want to get familiar with what the marketplace looks like and who the vendors are. Steve Kaukonen and Thomas Sue from Accenture, thanks for joining us today on Game Changer. Thank you, Jesse. It was a pleasure. And Jesse, it's been great talking with you and my best wishes to everyone else out there who's uh, exploring this area of gamification.
We'll provide links to the resources that they shared, as well as the LinkedIn and Twitter handles for both Steve and Thomas in the show notes for this episode, which you can find at engagingleader.com forward slash GC10, as in Game Changer Episode 10. And if you're working on the Game Changer series puzzle, our clue for Episode 10 is the letter L, as in Larry. You'll find other clues in each of the first 14 episodes in the Game Changer series, as well as in Engaging Leader Podcast, episode 38, featuring Kevin Werbeck. As soon as you think you know the secret phrase, email it to me at jesse at engagingleader.com. If you enjoy this series, be sure to check out the weekly leadership podcast, Engaging Leader, where my guests and I share more ways to communicate, engage, and lead with greater impact. Until next time, remember, life is short, so keep it fun. You can find both Game Changer and Engaging Leader podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, and on our website at engagingleader.com. To stay up on the latest news and trends in internal gamification, join the Game Changer group on LinkedIn. We'll automatically direct you to our LinkedIn group when you go to engagingleader.com slash group. Subscribe to our e-digest at engagingleader.com slash newsletter. When you do, we'll send you a free copy of Jesse's ebook, Eight Communication Tools for Leaders. You can also follow Jesse on Twitter, at Jesse Leahy, and like us at facebook.com slash engagingleader. Game Changer is a production of Aspendale Communications, a consulting firm that helps mid-sized and large employers attract top talent, engage employees, and deliver superior business results. Find out more at aspendalecommunications.com. Our thanks to Joe Sherwood, our producer, Tom Hitchcock, our programming director, James Marler, our sound engineer, Cliff Ravenscraft, our podcasting advisor, Dustin Hartzler, our website engineer, J.J. Leahy, our video and web intern, and Peter McIsaac, who composed our theme music. 